We're beginning a new series this week called Paradox, seeing the identity of Jesus in light of the cross. And you know, for the first century church, uh, the beginning of Christianity, the cross was a real problem for those who were considering converting to Christianity. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the cross was foolishness to the Greeks and that it was weakness to the Jews. And I don't think it's a surprising uh, problem because I think we see the same thing today. If you talk with non-Christians today about Jesus, there's lots of things that they're interested in talking about and admiring. They may talk about the things that he said, like the Sermon on the Mount. They may uh, look at the miracles that he did or just the love that he had for other people. But usually the part of the story they avoid is his, uh, his criminal trial, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But for us as Christians, that really is the focal point. It really is the centerpiece. It's not uh, something on the fringe of who Jesus is. In fact, it's not even the greatest uh, blemish on Jesus's identity, but actually the greatest light into who Jesus really is. The gospel authors seem to agree with this because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them spend at least a third of their entire testimony of who Jesus is and what he did, focusing in on the final, uh, final days leading up to Jesus's crucifixion. They seem to, be this, uh, seem to see this as the climax and the centerpiece of the story of who Jesus is. That's why it's a paradox. How can it be that a criminal trial displays the justice of Jesus? How can it be that an ignoble death demonstrates his glory? How can it be that the one they were expecting, the Messiah, was shown to be the Messiah, not in conquering his enemies, but being conquered by them? There's an irony in the Gospels' accounts, especially in the Gospel of Mark, that really draws out the fact that Jesus' identity is on display when it seems like it's most in question. And we're going to see that in the next four weeks as we look at who Jesus is. In each case, we'll see as bystanders talk about Jesus' identity. In most of the cases, they will mock him as prophet, as king, as messiah, and then as the Son of God. And yet, Mark wants us to see that, surprising as it sounds, as paradoxical as we might think, it is these moments that best demonstrate that Jesus truly is God's one true prophet, that he truly is the King of Kings, the Messiah and the Son of God incarnate. And so the passage we're going to look at today is in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. I'll read it to you. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. 
And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. As we've seen many times in the Gospel of Mark, here he uses what we call a Markan sandwich. He structures the story in such a way to tie it all together, and he does so by beginning and ending with Peter. And so we find Peter out in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire. Mark turns his attention to Jesus' trial inside the house, and then it returns to the courtyard to finish out the story with Peter. The reason Mark does this is to contrast the faithful testimony of Jesus and his commitment to be honest, his commitment to the truth, and Peter's failure and denial of Jesus three times. They're juxtaposed like this. In fact, that idea of juxtaposing is the place where we need to begin in this passage. Because although here Jesus is on trial for his words, for blasphemy, for the things that he has supposedly said. In fact, he's on trial because the things he has said, he's attached to the authority of God, which would render him, if he is lying, a false prophet. And so even uh, in Jesus' court case, after they come to their conclusion, it says that those who stood by began to cover up his eyes and strike him and call out, prophesy. Who hit you, Jesus, is the idea here. They're mocking Jesus because they are identifying him as a false prophet. But the first thing we see here is despite the fact that this is a criminal trial for false prophecy and blasphemy, the falseness we find in this story is not in Jesus, but in everyone else. For example, we see those who bring false testimony against Jesus. Like most court cases today, Jewish court cases required eyewitness testimony. That's especially true according to the Old Testament law in cases of capital punishment. You needed to have two or three witnesses to bring about the death penalty on somebody. And here they drum up false witnesses 
who make up statements, and because they're made up, they can't agree. Their own testimony contradicts one another. Even when they do find someone to come forward and to speak, who says something that we know is close to what Jesus said. We know, according to the Gospel of John, that he had said with bystanders around, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Speaking not of the physical temple, but of his own body. And so some come here and they suggest an amalgam. They might have been around to hear that, but that's clearly not enough to condemn Jesus. They are false witnesses. Of course, we also see Peter, who is, in a sense, a false witness. Here he is to be a representative of Jesus, a disciple, an apostle, and under the interrogation of a little servant girl and some bystanders, he loses all of his commitments, all of his courage. Just a page before this, he told Jesus, I am willing to die for you. But here he denies ever knowing Jesus, and it escalates to the point where he begins to curse like the sailor he is, uh, and even swear to God that he's never met Jesus. And so we don't find a faithful witness there. We don't find a truth teller there. Of course, it's the same with the religious leaders who are overseeing this whole tribal trial, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin who sit on this court case, they're determined to bring Jesus's death. We've known that for chapters that they were finding a way to put Jesus to death. And so they drum up these false witnesses that, and that doesn't work. Uh, and they are going to make this happen. But it's interesting that all of the things that they go about in this court trial are already uh, outside the fence of their authority. What I mean is early Jewish documents known as the Mishnah, which provide legal commentary on the application of the Old Testament laws, tell us that in the first century, court cases uh, had all sorts of rules and limitations that needed to be followed. For example, it couldn't happen in the middle of the night. It also couldn't happen the day before uh, a feast. Uh, the Sentencing had to be on a different day than the hearing of the witnesses. But here, everything is just rubber-stamped and avoided because they are set on bringing Jesus to death. So authority fails. The honesty of the people around Jesus fail. His own friends and family fail. And it's an interesting thing here that Jesus is on trial for being false. And yet the trial is false. Everyone around Jesus is false. And yet he remains true. In fact, Jesus here is on trial for the things that he said for being a false prophet. But this passage actually demonstrates the truthfulness of Jesus' prophecies. Listen to his words uh, weeks earlier in Mark chapter 8. Here he's just speaking to his disciples privately. And he begins at this time to explain what's coming in his ministry. And this is what he says in chapter 8. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. He had foretold that the elders, the chief priests and scribes would put him to death. And not only that, but listen uh, a little bit later. Here in uh, chapter 10, 
Jesus, again, is talking about his death and resurrection. And listen to what he says this time. In verse 33 of chapter 10, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And listen to this. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Think of the irony of that scene as we read it. Here, Jesus is condemned by the religious leaders and they begin to mock him as being a false prophet, covering up his eyes and striking him across the face. Tell us, Jesus, prophesy, who hit you? And yet he had already foretold that they would mock him and spit upon him, condemn him to death and beat him. Of course, we see the same thing with Peter. Peter was so adamant that he would keep his word and be faithful to Jesus But Jesus told Peter he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And that's exactly what happens. But there's something even more profound and significant here. Not only do we demonstrate the truthfulness of Jesus' words, the validation that he is a true prophet sent from God, but we also see Jesus as the fulfillment of of prophecy. So for a significant part of this trial, Jesus doesn't answer his accusations. He knows that the witnesses are false. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't defend himself until he is questioned directly by the high priest. Look again in chapter 14. Look here at the question he asks him. In verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked him, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And so he asked him directly, Are you the Messiah? The Christ there is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And he says, Are you the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the very Son of God? He asks him directly, Now, if you've been following the Gospel of Mark, Jesus consistently has been quiet about his identity. He privately revealed himself in the transfiguration to his disciples. He silenced those he did miracles for and told them not to do anything. But here is the direct question. Are you the Messiah? Are you Jesus, the very Son of God? And listen to his answer. Remember, as Jesus here is asked effectively under oath and directly about his identity, notice what he says. He says here in verse 62, Jesus said, I am. I am. Not just a prophet, but the prophet, the expected prophet, the Messiah. Not just God's man, but the Son of God the Old Testament spoke of. He says, I am. And then he doubles down and he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so he gathers together a couple of threads here, some from the Psalms, as well as some from the book of David in chapter 7. And he says, because I am the Messiah, you will witness the heavenly Father handing all authority, power, principalities to me as the Son of Man, as the Son of God. All authority will be given to me and you will see it. 
Now, this is such a profound statement here because remember, Jesus is on trial, but he says here, he is the authority. He is the judge. He is the one who will judge, Daniel says, both the living and the dead, including these religious leaders. Now, that's more than the religious leaders can bear. It's at this point that they find exactly what they're looking for. They label it blasphemy. They tear their clothes in a sign of distancing themselves from what was said, and they condemn Jesus to death. But the truth is, Jesus here is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament said that the Messiah would be. Isaiah 53 tells us that as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so the Messiah would open not his mouth. And so Jesus is in this trial. Not until he's called out under oath, he just remains silent. We'll see the same thing under Herod, the same thing under Pilate. He goes through this wrongful death, this unjust court case. Uh, he goes through all of this oppression, and he does so without... Uh, without speaking up for himself, without defending himself. He's resolved to endure all of this, just as the Old Testament said. In fact, Isaiah 53 goes on to talk about the fact that the Messiah would come, would suffer for his own people at the hands of his own people, would die, be buried, and would be raised again. And Jesus here identifies himself and he says, I am not just the one who speaks forth the word of God. I am the content of the word of God. I am the focal point of God's message. I'm not just the messenger. I am the very message. I am who you've been waiting for. And in the midst of this, he demonstrates not just that he is God's prophet, but he is the one that all prophecy points to. And again, I find this to be so profound because it's in the midst of the failure of these religious leaders who were supposed to represent God. And it's in the midst of the failure of Peter who was supposed to represent Jesus. And it's in the midst of this awful and horrible attack on Jesus that his identity is laid bare for us and we discover the one true faithful witness to God the one true message that God has sent to the earth. If you want to know who God is, we have to look to Jesus. We have to hear what he says. And ultimately, we have to hear what he says about himself because Jesus is the one true message to us. Now that is confrontational. It's confrontational for these religious leaders who says, actually, Jesus says, actually, I'm not the one who's on trial here. You are. What are you going to do with the Son of Man? What are you going to do to the Son of God? It's the same with Peter. When Peter goes through these practices, does just as Jesus said, he has to face the reality of his own failure. And when he hears the rooster crow for the second time, just as Jesus said, and he remembers his words, it cuts him to the heart. He's convicted and he broke down and he wept. And we need that in our life as well. If God has really spoken, we should desire to know what he has said. And if he's spoken through Jesus, we should desire to hear it. And one of the things that Jesus has said is that we are sick 
and in need of a doctor, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that our righteousness will not stand and we need the righteousness of another. But that's not all that Jesus said. And in the same way that Jesus will go on to restore Peter, in the same way that he prophesied earlier, not just that he would be handed over to the religious leaders and uh, tried by them to death and then put to death and even buried, but he says, and after three days I will raise again. There's a positive to the message that God has sent in Jesus Christ. There's a good news that goes along with the bad news. And the good news as Jesus presents it is I've come to die not merely at your hands but on your behalf so that you might be forgiven of your sins, so that you might have my righteousness instead of your sinfulness, so that you might be adopted into the family of God, so that I will go away and one day return and make all things new. The reason why this is all so important is because we have a choice every day whose words we're going to build our life on. Maybe it's going to be our promises. Maybe it's going to be the counsel of others. Maybe it's the good advice you've been given or the criticism that defines your identity as people hammer home again and again how worthless you are. Maybe it's your self-talk, all the things you believe about yourself and repeat to yourself lest you forget how great and marvelous you are. Maybe it's the soothing words of another authority that promises to take care of you. Let me tell you this, all of those words will fail. But Jesus says, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will never fail. And so we can trust him. We can trust him today with the promises he's given us today. We can trust him for tomorrow for the promises he's given us tomorrow. And we can trust that one day, just as he says in this passage, we will see him in the clouds of heaven, crowned King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, and in a place and a posture to fulfill all of the good and precious promises he's made us available in the free gift of his blood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the way that this, even his criminal trial, pulls back the curtain and shows us who Jesus really is and the faithful God with his faithful promises that stands behind him, affirming his authority and sending him so that we may have a road back to you. I pray, Lord, that our, uh, our lives will be built, as Jesus called us to, on the firm foundation, the solid stone of his word, and not on the shifting sand of public opinion or of our personal ideas, uh, or of any other voice, Lord. I pray that in our lives, no voice would be louder than the voice of the one true prophet who speaks for God and is also the greatest thing that God ever said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.